Seeking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. And we have made it through one month of NBA playoff basketball. It is whew, a lot has happened in this first round. Sorry, co- sorry. What's that, Cody? What you're not? It hasn't been one month. It's been it's been one week. We made it through the first week of the NBA playoffs. It's it's the weirdest time loop. Like we were talking about this right before recording. I feel like I've been with these teams for at least a month at this point. The the whole one week thing it doesn't make sense at all. Yeah, a lot has happened. I I don't remember at this point when we last talked or what we talked about, but uh, we are getting very close to what looks like it's just going to be a second round of nonstop, exciting, juicy matchups. The Suns and the Nuggets are on the brink of that series that we've been looking forward to. On the other side of the bracket, we still don't have clarity, but maybe a good place to start is the Nuggets-Lakers. The Lakers absolutely destroyed Memphis in the first quarter of this game the other night. They ran the same play over and over and over again, and Memphis could not stop it. It got them out to a huge, it was like 35 to 9 or something. I think it matched the biggest lead in the first quarter of an NBA playoff game. They never looked back. They're up 2 1. And uh, we said it right after the first day of games or the first weekend of playoff games. But to me, the Grizzlies are on the brink here. Just the lack of depth, the lack of size. The personnel issues matching up with Anthony Davis, LeBron James. Um, Lakers are very close close to advancing on that side of the bracket. And then you're going to get a death match between the offensive juggernaut of of Golden State and Sacramento. I want to ask you a question about that Lakers-Grizzlies game. Because last time we were together, I said that I'm still kind of feeling the Grizzlies. That I think they can kind of replicate what they're doing, blah, 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 blah. Then all of a sudden, Lakers come out absolutely pound them. John Morant is back. He scores like 22 straight in the fourth quarter. That's always, you know, that's not what you want the best player to go against if you're the Lakers. But what what do you actually take away from that game? Because from my perspective, I see a game like that, and obviously the first quarter is extremely concerning if you're a Grizzlies fan, but I kind of turned it off after that, and I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to glean anything from it. It's like when the Bucks like broke the the first half scoring record in in game two. I'm like, I'm not really going to get anything from this because they're not going to shoot like this. Fro, what what did you take away from that game? Yeah, I did the same thing. I basically turned it off. I saw, I think I saw a little of some of the action in the second half, just casually uh, in the background, that kind of thing, because it was still on, but. Uh, you, I, I'll, I'll tell you, Cody, for me, I think it was 17 to two off, just off the top of my head and the possessions I was seeing combined with the shot quality, the body language, uh, I actually didn't get, I didn't watch at the time, the rest of the first quarter, I've seen some of the film in the first half and, and gone back to review it, but it just looked like, wow, uh, the Lakers have a clear advantage here. Memphis is struggling with certain things. And, and the, the area I'm really worried about Memphis, and they're going to play in a few hours as of recording this, so when a lot of people are listening, this game will be done. Um, they have to win three of the next four games to advance out of the series. I, I just think they're on a razor-thin margin at this point. They, they probably need some luck. They probably need good shooting stuff. Um, 
because I'm just not sure what kind of adjustments they could make coming into game four to really create an advantage for themselves and turn the series. And with the Lakers already having two games in the bag, I just think that makes it extremely difficult for them. So I, I am officially, if we were if we were doing the old warm up the fishing boat, who's going on vacation, that kind of thing, uh, the boat would be warm for the Grizzlies in my mind at this point. Wow, you're there. I I don't know if I'm quite there yet, Ben. I'm I'm still I'm still you know I'm gonna keep an eye on the the boating area. I was gonna say the marinara, but that's that's definitely not where you can take it. I'm talking about the the marina, the, the, marina, the marina. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't want people getting marinara on my marina. That would be I would be unfortunately hap- unhappy about that. But with the Grizzlies, I don't know, Ben. I'm not ready to be off them. This this feels like really low level analysis. And at times, especially in the first round of the playoffs, I feel like that's what you have to fall back to just because there's so much going on. Uh, sometimes, you know, things happen and it changes the course of an entire series. But I just don't know if Anthony Davis can keep up his ridiculous play. It feels like he's almost on like an every other sort of thing. LeBron James, you know, he has his flashy blocks, but he's still like not the LeBron James that I'm expecting. And I just feel like if we're talking about like consistently, maybe the Grizzlies are going up and down. I mean, the, the Lakers are going up and down and spiking, but the Grizzlies it feels like they can hit like a higher I don't know a higher average of performance and and drag it out that way so that's where I'm sitting with the series right now okay okay I I mean that feels optimistic they absolutely have to hit shots but um, I think that's more than just Desmond Bain hitting shots or your favorite player Tyus Jones hitting shots he has struggled immensely to shoot the basketball from his hands and body area up into the hoop over the front of the rim and into the basket uh, I think when we, when we looked it up this morning I think he was at minus 30 percent true shooting for the series or something like that so it's been a struggle for all of the Grizzlies but to your point it's only three games and um, you know we'll we'll see if they can even the series at 2-2 they they still have life I just think it's thin I think it's a must win tonight for them to stay alive whereas there are other times a team can go down 3-1 and you can still see how they could create enough of an advantage to win two games, especially if they had two of those three games, excuse me, win three games to close the series, especially if they have two of those three games at home. So that that one series is alive. The other Western series that is alive and, and, and better than ever, it may be the best first round series that we've ever seen, is the Kings and... Uh, who are they playing? The Golden State Warriors. That's the that's the other team there that's won all those championships recently. I was like the Kings, and I don't remember the name of the uh, opponent. Um, that was yet another incredible scintillating game four. Uh, I have I have a few thoughts on that, but certainly we're going to come back to this series, and we've talked about it a bit. But just want to give a few notes on on maybe some of the game three and game four action since we last spoke. Did did you have anything that has kind of jumped out to you at this point as as we head to the the back stretch of the series, the last few games here? I just what I can't get over with when it comes to this series is if like let's say for instance right me i bottled up the series like i collected the tape and it sent it back to myself in like 2006 and i opened it up i'd be like so did was there like a time machine did we get together like two of the best 
collections of offensive players ever, and this is what's happening. And I think that's how I feel when I'm watching it. It's just like so dizzying and fast-paced, and I'm like, how are either team actually keeping up with each other and the high level of offense? And I think the high level of offense, you can kind of see them starting to to break each other, and I think that's where the, the Warriors have really shown up recently, like Draymond Green being back, like a couple of his defensive plays near the end there, just like his ability to blow up actions, to single-handedly completely blow up an action is so invaluable to them. And on the other side, you see like there were a couple of key plays with between like De'Aaron Fox one play and I think Malik Monk on another going the wrong direction just for a second when defending Steph Curry around a screen. And that just opens him up for a three that he's able to hit. And I think like that's that's where we are with the series. It's at such a high level that there's like one or two moments like that where it's like I made one decision that threw me off for half a second. And that's what made the difference in this series. And that's that's my main takeaway from this. Well, and we we still continue to get certain tactical adjustments or chess matches that are super, super interesting. We anticipated this with the flexibility of the roster, the history of the Warriors themselves, the fact that Mike Brown has been with the Warriors for so long. So I imagine going through practice for them, Mike must be like, no, 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 that's not that's not how it works. Steph wants to go over here or do this. You have to watch Clay for this. Like, th- do they need a scout for this series at all? It feels like he just tells everyone how it goes because he, you know, he used to work in the opposing gym for a number of years, seven or eight years, whatever it was. But some of those little tactical adjustments that still continue to make an impact. Um, one, Draymond Green coming out, starting the second half after he came off the bench, and then he's matched up with Darren Fox at the point of attack. So we continue to marvel at Draymond. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it feels like this book has already been written, but more chapters are being added to the end. What an incredible modern, versatile defender. What a weapon to have where you can take a guy who at the end of a critical classic game four in this series can make an incredible defensive play uh, against a a wing forward driving in transition. Harrison Barnes, I think, up and jumps backwards, which he's known to do, contests the shot. The shot comes off. Sabonis scoops it up. Then he blocks it in a help block situation coming from the baseline under the basket all within a couple seconds. But he's only 6'6", has those dancing bare feet. And so you put him on De'Aaron Fox, the fastest player in the league, and he does a good job keeping De'Aaron Fox in front of him. Uh, they also, when Fox went to the bench, used him on Malik Monk, who when Fox is on the bench, Malik Monk is running more offense. And it's just the kind of thing where great offense is hard to stop. But if you can slow it down just a little bit, if you can disrupt it just a little bit, if you can find more friction at that point of attack, it can create a huge amount of value in a series, as you said, that's really close. And I thought, you know, that was that was a brilliant little uh, adjustment that that paid dividends from an incredible defender. I think the the Draymond blocking Sabonis is probably going to be the main defensive play that people bring up when talking about Draymond. There were a couple other plays in that fourth quarter that, like you said, uh, Fox goes to the bench, Draymond Green's on Bleak Monk. At one point, the Kings are running like their traditional. Sabonis is at the top. He's got the ball. People are running around. He's trying to hand it to players. Draymond Green's ball denial on Malik Monk. He flat out refuses to let Monk 
get the ball. Now, the Kings end up scoring in that position. I think Davion Mitchell gets downhill and scores like an and one, but he shuts down plan A entirely, right? Later on, there's another possession where I don't remember what happened exactly, but Andrew Wiggins is is lagging behind the play. I don't know if he fell or something like that, but he's behind the play. The Kings have a five-on-four opportunity, and Draymond just completely blows it up. Sabonis like gets into the paint. Draymond rotates over and just strips him. Right. And then there's the transition opportunity, like you said, going to to blocking Sabonis. That was one of those where like Barnes was going and Draymond's rate waiting by the rim. And I'm like, this isn't good for Barnes. Like, this is not going to turn out well. Like Draymond's waiting down there. I, that's the point I am with Draymond is like whenever there's some kind of offensive player and he's waiting around, I'm just like, do something else kick somewhere else because he's already made a couple of brilliant plays. So that fourth quarter, he had a couple just masterclass plays defensively. And, you know, some of them were followed up by his passing. And you're right, between like the passing, his agility, his rim protection, his size, he is just such an enigmatic player. And I love watching him so much. Yeah, the the Kings are still uh, busting out box and ones in this game with Davion Mitchell hounding Steph Curry. So there's there's a lot of fun stuff going on. Uh, we take Steph Curry for granted still probably. He's absolutely amazing at any age, has just continued to excel in the last few years in the playoffs, making decisions, body control, uh, mid-range, getting to the basket, some of the three-point shot. He hit one shot in this game that wasn't a three. His foot was on the line. I, I don't. It was a step back. I don't know how the heck he hit that. Um, and, of course, for the Warriors, back against the wall, big game four. Clay made big shots. Steph made big shots. Jordan Poole's hampered with an ankle. I think that was definitely his best game of the series. Uh, it was just an incredible game. But I want to go back to the big men because this might take us to some other series in general as a topic. I thought the way the Kings played, and the Kings only play Sabonis as one traditional big man, they sort of cheat. They've got Harrison Barnes as the four. This is a very modern construction with Keegan Murray. Tip of the hat to Keegan Murray came out uh, with his best game of the series by far. And the Warriors have these two big men. I thought in the preview, we talked about this with Dave Dufour, hey, Looney's minutes are going to go down in this series because it's going to be hard for him to stay on the court with this pace and this offensive construction. A lot of that in my head was having two bigs because on offense, you don't get the spacing and on defense, you're slower. Well, Looney with Draymond out in game three continued to excel defensively against Demonis Sabonis. He played great. He had like 20 boards and did he have nine assists? In game three, am I making that up? We need to get our stats department on that, but he was great. Do, do you remember? Um, Let, let's, let's say, I'm going to put a pin in that because I want to say something about stats later, but I'll, I'll check that out right now. Okay, so he has this great game, and that leads to Draymond apparently going to Kerr and being like, yeah, just bring me off the bench. We'll figure it out. Staying with a single big man. And they stayed with a single big man for most of the first half. And I think only at the end of the first half for a couple minutes did they play both bigs together. Well, lo and behold, you just come out in the second half and you say, we'll try it sort of full-time here. Draymond is on De'Aaron Fox, as we talked about. But those two guys together, Cody, you talked about the passing. They had 13 assists combined. So the Warriors' big men, basically because they're able to run the split cuts where they go down in the post and you have all this action and movement and those two guys pass 
or the short roll action, usually off a Steph Curry screen, and he gets two guys sent to him, and then he flips it to one of the bigs. And Looney has learned, he's no, no one's Draymond Green in that position, basically, but Looney has learned how to hit the cutter out of the corner when he dives at the same time, how to hit the little dunker spot if the guy rotates over and no one else is there to help. And so it's like having two of them on the court, and I think that's allowed the offense to get away with not having the same spacing, especially with the way that Curry, Clay, Poole, and even Andrew Wiggins are playing and shooting the basketball. And so all of a sudden, this team that was super, super small all year and struggled with size, I mean, in yesterday's game four, Draymond 31 minutes, Looney 32 minutes, Wiggins 37 minutes, and all those guys, Wiggins had four blocks in the game, and between those players... 32 rebounds. So you get 32 rebounds, six blocks, and 16 assists from your front line. Um, that feels very atraditional. That's that's wild to get those kinds of numbers. I mean, it's like it's like a lot of rebounding in defense and a lot of passing. It's a Bill Walton-y kind of front line from those three. Yeah, going to Kavon Looney in that previous game, here's a stat line, Ben. Four points, 20 rebounds, nine assists. I mean, that's the kind of thing that people are going to be bringing up in like the greatest fewer than five point playoff performances in NBA history kind of thing. But going to Andrew Wiggins having four blocks again, I said last episode, I swear he gets longer each time I see him. That's absolutely the case. Every time I see him, it's like this guy's been stretching out his arms. He's getting so good at this chase down block. Like once again, it's one of those guys where if someone's in front of him driving, I'm like, Wiggins has has this timed out. It's over. He's just going to swat it. And so do you think, because we did not see this Ben, we did not see this a lot throughout the regular season. What do you think has shifted for the Warriors so well at this point? Is it just like Draymond's turned it on because it's the playoffs? Is it the fact that Wiggins is back with them and playing? Like, what's the secret sauce to help them get their motor going to this level? Yeah, I think it's Wiggins. I think Wiggins and his ability to play big, the versatility of the defenders like Draymond, and then the last piece with Looney, we talked about it a little bit, I think, after the opening weekend of games. He has defended Demonis Sabonis incredibly well. And Demonis Sabonis likes to play bully ball. He likes to power you. And he uses some of his speed, especially getting to his left hand, against slower-footed, more traditional bigs. Looney has done an incredible job despite, you know, running the running the 40-yard dash in seven seconds or whatever his sprinting speed is. He's done an incredible job of staying in front of him, positioning himself, and creating that huge cushion where he says, we will give you... You want a 16-footer? You could take a 16-footer. In fact, my wife came into the room while I was watching a play, looks over my shoulder. Damanis gets the ball around the elbow, and there's that moment where Looney's sagged off and is just like, I'm going to let you shoot this. And Damanis is like, wait a second, am I really open at the elbow by 10 feet? None of the other Warriors come help. He just stands there, almost like he puts it like a couple dribbles, like he's practicing a free throw, shoots the shot and misses. And my wife says to me, was that a free throw? Were they running around the court during a free throw? No, that that was the Warriors giving Demonis Sabonis a wide open 15 footer. And so Looney has been able to really, really take away sort of, all of the weapons that Sabonis has because he can't use the drive. There's no one to go around. And then at the rim, he really wants to get to the left hand and use power. 
Kavan has been both crafty enough and strong enough. It's been a bit of a revelation for me. If we could take a step back, Cody, and talk about the best players in the league right now, the best players at their position. At the beginning of the year, we did a lot of Kings scouting. It wasn't clear to me yet who was more important for stirring the drink or who I would take in a vacuum over Fox and Sabonis. It's much clearer to me at this point in the season that Fox is their best player. And you can see some of these limitations with Sabonis. We know about his defensive limitations, but as a scorer, he doesn't really have a lot of traditional moves. He doesn't really have maybe any traditional moves and his ability to kind of bully, discard, push, shove, and use power down near the basket to try to get layups, free throws, and shots. If you have a bigger defender like Looney on him, it takes almost all of that away. It's, it's, it's been a pretty big revelation for me. I think Sabonis' shooting to me is really confusing because during the regular season, he was at least like a functional jump shooter. So I don't know if he's completely in his own head or what's going on, but like the amount of times where he's just wide open that they leave him. And he's just looking around again, looking to hand it off to somebody and refuses to take the jump shot. He will once in a while. And I feel like it's been clanging a few more times than I'm used to than the regular season. I think the thing that's tough about Sabonis, though, is I watched this series, though. And Ben, this series, the Kings-Warriors does not look like any other series in the playoffs right now. Especially, and I'm sure we'll talk about them at some point, especially Knicks-Cavs at the moment, right? And so I wonder, do you think that that Sabonis would just, would he look better if he were in a slower-paced sort of series? Or is the fact that he's able to sort of be this this dribble handoff hub in a high-octane offense, like what what's the trade-off you want with him? Do you want him to be in a slower offense where he can kind of get to that bruising post-up sort of thing? Or do you want him to be more of the handoff guy that might struggle in a higher octane bruising against someone like Kevon Looney on defense? No, I think, I think this situation is a better situation for his mm-hmm. skill set. I think if you put him in one of the Eastern series where you had capable, big, strong, good rim protectors and defenders, um, you might have a similar situation. You know, I actually, I think he's in a good situation. It's just sometimes throughout the regular season, you don't get that matchup or you don't get that game plan. In this case, the Warriors being like, when you have the ball outside the rim, we will stand under the rim. Uh, Just in case anyone is wondering, you can't have defensive three seconds called on you if your man has the ball. So literally... Sabonis gets the ball. They just drop back. They don't care. They want to give him a 5, 8, 12-foot cushion. I, Cody, I think some of the teams in the East, it would be a similar thing. It's, it's the lack of an ability to counter. You take away my left, I spin back to the right. He really, really is uncomfortable going back to the right, it seems. He really wants to get to that left hand. He does have a little baby hook shot around the basket, but that's not a developed hook. That's not like a, I'm going to give you some shoulder head fakes and comfortably get to my hook. He doesn't have a great push shot floater. He doesn't have a fadeaway. He doesn't have an older over the shoulder shot. So you compare that to, say, the two best post scorers who are bigs that we think about, Joel Embiid and uh, Nikola Jokic. Those guys Left shoulder, right shoulder, pull up, hang, floater, hezzy, spin, up fake, Olajuwon, dream shake. They have a lot of counters, even when the game is crowded up and defenses are, you know, on to them. It's been fun watching Jokic try to score on Gobert because Gobert is so big and he's still a really good man defender. And he has limited Jokic a little bit. But there's a lot of times where Jokic is just like, nah, I got you, I got you with that fadeaway. You just have no shot 
of getting this little one-legged fadeaway. I, I'm going to get you with the hook shot. I'm going to get you with the up and under. You get me back with a block. That, that's how it works. You go to Sabonis, much more limited. I'm going to hit you with a question here, Ben. I'm going to hit you with a question. Uh, you can give me a, the top couple players if you'd like, if you want to rank them in some way. Uh, what player or players do you think have the most or most effective counters offensively in the league right now? Scoring counters? Or is yeah. it, are we thinking well, scoring talk, only? Yeah, scoring counters. Yeah, scoring. Hmm. Uh, that's a... Wouldn't that just be the same list as the best scores in the league for the most part? Where, what do you think? You think it would be different? I guess it's weird. I don't have the stats in front of me, so I don't 100% well, well, think. Just, I think the, just think about it this way. Just think about uh, Embiid, Jokic, yep. we talked about, Kawhi Leonard, um, Kevin Durant, and then do you get into other players we mentioned in this conversation earlier in this year, a, a month or two ago, whenever we talked about it, uh, Giannis, Steph Curry, maybe Dame Lillard this season. You know, these guys, he's not in the playoffs anymore, so you don't think about him. But my hunch is, wouldn't it be that list of players who naturally are able to score that well because they either have counters or like they have some nuclear bomb primary move, Zion Williamson creating space and getting to his left hand, something like that. Don't you think it would be a similar list? I think so. And I think watching this series, my answer, if I were to give a single answer, because all of those guys are very good at this, I think Steph Curry is it. Like, watching him just shows, like, how much he brings to the table. The fact that he's still so effective off-ball. The fact that he can still take you off the dribble and finish around the trees. The fact that, like you said, he hit multiple impossible shots this last game. The step back, like, quick release foot on the line thing. There was another three he hit where I swore Barnes blocked it. Like, I, I watched it multiple times, and I'm like, I, I swear this is a block. Um, I, you know, I think Jokic is obviously right there. Uh, Embiid is right there, but, but Curry, and I still think that off ball ability. And I think that might be the key is I think when a player is able to bring this off ball juice and get themselves open and kind of cause chaos that way, that unlocks them in a, in a different way. And I think that's something we're seeing from Jimmy Butler in the, in the Milwaukee heat series is Jimmy Butler is fantastic on ball right now, but I think some of his off ball stuff as well, his cutting and whatever else is just bringing it to another level where it's, it's, it's possible to scheme against him yeah curry we talked about last year that mid-range component and using the mid-range not only as a counter between you know you run me off the three-point line i'm going to go to the basket but a place where you can score and a place where you can then set up the defense again so they run you off the three-point line this very subtle patient move he does basically a hezzy where he's either slowing down and faking a shot and that draws attention. But if you don't sell out to that, he's like an elite mid-range shooter. So the shot he actually missed at the end of the game against De'Aaron Fox, where he took it a little bit early on the clock, I in real time loved the shot because he's a very good mid-range shooter. He had whatever it was at eight, nine, 12 seconds left on the shot clock. I don't know if you circle back out at that point if you're going to get a better look in that situation to spike winning probability than a wide open 14 foot Steph Curry shot, he, he just he just missed it. But that's a really high percentage shot for him. And the tightness of the handle, the way he uses his body, the combination of live ball pick and roll game and coming off screens, and then 
either getting all the way to the basket, using that mid-range. I think that's one of the reasons why he finishes so well for his size. He gets to the mid-range, and he can throw another little threat at you because he's going to pull up, he's going to take a floater, he's going to step back. Um, you're, you're right. He, he really, at this point in his career, has a very, very deep arsenal of counters and would certainly be, yeah, I think he'd be a finalist for, for that conversation. What else you got? What other what other questions can you put me on the spot with today? <laughs> well, I wanna I wanna use this opportunity to transition to the Knicks Cavs series because I want to talk about Jalen Brunson for a second. Because what's really interesting, and, and I don't know let's talk about stats in a second. Because I have not been looking at stats like at all these playoffs. And it's not because I hate stats, anyone. Don't be like Cody Hodick of Thinking Basketball comes out hard against. Like, no, that's not happening. There's just a lot of. That should be the thread title. Yes. If you're on Reddit, (laughs) make sure that is the thread title. Cody, Thinking Basketball says they hate stats now. Uh, It's only Cody, it's only been three or four games. We don't have have much of a sample to go on, although I do have a stat for you in a second about Jalen Brunson based on a very small sample. But continue. Go, go, Go ahead. Go ahead, please. So. My point with Jalen Brunson is I was shocked to pull up basketball reference at one point and be like, oh, wow, he's actually even less efficient than he has been in the regular season. Like, by no metric is this guy having, like, what you would consider a strong offensive series. But when I watched the series and I watched the resiliency with his shot profile, the fact that even though he's shooting, like, 28% from three, he's still making the defenses bend to him when he gets to the three-point line. The fact that he can basically at will generate this this not even like a step back mid-range jumper but like a pullback mid-range jumper where he keeps that that one pivot foot back he kind of goes forward with it and then goes back and hit it the fact that he has this herky-jerky style that lets him get to this little floater range all of that I feel it makes him a really dangerous playoff scorer because there's very little you can really do to stop him from getting what he wants even though he's not necessarily the most efficient at it so it's really strange because this series is just it's so much different than the Kings Warriors series where I'm like I, I don't know. I don't think you can do like a one-to-one comparison of being like, look at how much better these players are offensively when it's like, well, defensively, this series is just slower. It's it's bigger. Um, I, I don't know what my overall point is, but I think my I think my point, if I'm trying to figure it out myself, is like <laughs> Jalen Brunson is doing something special in this series that I don't really know how to capture in a coherent statistical way, if that makes well, sense. Yeah, but in, in I think where you're going is in any playoff series, you want to apply the context of the team around you and the team you're playing. And so the Warriors and Kings are that good offensively. All of the all of the dynamic we discussed earlier with the shooting and the movement and the pace and trying to stop point of attack, that's all relevant. That all counts because of the skill of those players. On the eastern side of the country, the Knicks and the Cavs they're defensive teams. Well, I shouldn't say that as a blanket statement about the Cavs. They had a, they had a very good offense this year. But the, I mean, excuse me, the Knicks had a very good offense. But the Cavs are a defense first team. The Cavs are a team that is has a ton of size and is trying to win by stopping you from scoring so much that they get you below their low scoring themselves. I think their offensive rating after four games in the series is about 101. So they're really having a tough time scoring. Jalen Brunson, what you described to me is inelastic scoring, this concept of resilient playoff scoring, that it doesn't matter too much the kind of defense, but it's a floor-raising effort in the sense that Brunson is not going to go out and 
uh, generate very easily 65 or 70% true shooting in these games while scoring 35 points a night. He's going to give you those 25 to 30 points a night on lower efficiency true shooting, which is perfect for a rock fight of a series. It's perfect for a series like, you know, Pistons Pacers 2004. If you have a guy that can generate 48% looks, that might win you the series. In this case, through four games, Brunson averaging 27 points per 75 on 55% true shooting. That is, of course, below league average. But if you look at the true shooting percentages of the other players in the series, especially those that play for the Cleveland Cavaliers, um, it, it is, I mean, you don't have a 101 offensive rating without really finding trouble. Donovan Mitchell, 22 points per 75 on 52% true shooting. He's really struggling. Garland on the series, 22 on 54% true shooting. Karis LeVert, 17 on 53% true shooting. Evan Mobley, 49% true shooting. Um, Chetty Osmond, Jetty Osmond, 50% true shooting. Okoro, 52% true shooting. So you can see when you get into that environment how having a guy like Jalen Brunson, who's basically the best, um, let's say, I don't want to say the best offensive player in the series because Garland and Mitchell are in the series, but he's he's the best guy who's just like, clear it out if we can play some one-on-one in the mid-range in a playoff environment who can I get to make buckets right Brunson's the weakest playmaker of those guys by far probably the Cavs have attacked some of his limitations we can talk about those if you want but just from the scoring side that iso game allows the Knicks to get enough offense it was one of the reasons why I lean New York in the series because of that exact phenomenon that you're describing I'm glad you you specifically said that he's like probably the third best creator of the Mitchell Garland Brunson. I think trio there's a pretty in the series. yeah. I think there's a big drop off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think what what really what I was thinking about when I was watching the game yesterday is when I was watching it, I'm like Jalen Brunson is very clearly the best point guard or the best guard in this game right now. Like it, it wasn't even close at that point. I'm like this is really strange. Like would I go out there? Would I go to Twitter? Right, Ben? Would I go to Twitter and say Jalen Brunson is better than Darius Garland? That didn't quite sit well with me. And then the fourth quarter came, and or the third quarter maybe, and Darius Garland had like 12 points and five assists in like three and a half minutes. I'm like, oh, this is the Darius Garland. But there's just like a, a trucking along aspect to what Jalen Brunson brings to the table that, I don't know, maybe it, maybe it appeals to my like really getting into basketball mid-2000s sensibilities, but it feels like, like you said, very inelastic. And ultimately, Ben, I just wish I could see like the Cavaliers play the Kings in a playoff series because I just, I genuinely don't know what it would look like. I would look like the Kings probably winning the playoff series. Um, Garland, I'm so glad you mentioned him. He th- This series has had a fun little dynamic of back and forths and Garland came out completely dominated the third quarter the first eight or nine minutes of the third quarter. The Cavs were down big in the first half. I think it was nine at halftime. They came all the way back to take the lead in the middle of the third quarter because Garland was getting to his spots or creating easy baskets off of handoff pick and roll actions into space with guys like Mobley and Jared Allen. So the Knicks make a pretty critical adjustment, I think with like three minutes left in the third quarter. I can't quite remember. Uh, They had been either going at Brunson directly or hunting him at points in this series. So they move Brunson to the small forward, the the token fifth starter 
for the Cavs. That's been such an issue for them to find a fifth player. And so they basically hide Brunson on someone like Okoro where he doesn't have to worry about being put in these pick and roll actions that allows a better defender to, you know, the Josh Hart's of the world, if you will, uh, to guard the ball, whether it's Garland or Mitchell. I, I thought that was a huge change in, uh, in what New York did and just completely flipped the balance of that game. Because in olden times, I feel like the old way we used to watch basketball 15, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, certainly you would have a playoff game like that. A team would come out in the second half. They would find something that works. They would get an advantage from a player. A player would get hot like Garland. The momentum would change that big, scary, you know, quote unquote uh, momentum, the big M word. And, it would be like, oh, did you see Garland take over in the second half and steal the win to even the series? In today's NBA, there's so much going on that this huge rush that they get is completely counteracted by taking Brunson and putting him over on the small forward. All of a sudden, the Knicks get a couple buckets, and then the Knicks start doing things on their side where they're like, hey, we have success with our small, small pick and roll or whatever it is. Um, The thing that jumped out to me in this game when the Knicks had the ball Cleveland likes to overload the side. So if they run an empty pick and roll on one side of the court with three players on the other side of the court, they will rotate Jared Allen over as a third defender. Very common tactic. But the Knicks have really attacked that either by swinging the ball or more importantly with rebounding. Because what that is doing is it's bringing Allen off of his man. And if you see these huge rebounding numbers from Mitchell Robinson and Obi Toppin and guys like that, a lot of it is because the Cavs are rotating one of the bigs over to help on the ball. It opens up the backside lob when Brunson turns the corner. We saw that. And and the, def- the defensive sort of approach that they had also opened up R.J. Barrett to get these straight line drives, attacking closeouts, attacking in these situations. I don't know how many drives he officially ended up having in the tracking data, but it was a, a great R.J. Barrett game. Dare I say the best game of his career, given the stakes. And a ton of it, Cody, was from the way Brunson was being defended, from the way the Cavs were approaching team defense in this game. And huge credit to Barrett and his size just getting downhill when he had those gaps and finishing at the basket or getting to the line. All of that took a game that maybe 20 years ago would have been the Cavs to keep rolling it for another 15 minutes, stop that momentum, blunted it, turned it around the other way. Cavs go up, uh, excuse me, Knicks go up 3-1. Incredible series in Madison Square Garden. Incredible environment there. R.J. Barrett was an absolute revelation, and I feel like I need to issue some kind of apology because I've been extraordinarily critical of this guy. I think at some point, maybe even privately before the series, I was like, the key for the Knicks winning the series is limiting how much R.J. Barrett plays. And yesterday when he was playing, like you said, I just I just stopped taking notes. Like I just generally was like, R.J. Barrett again with the strong drive. R.J. Barrett getting into this action, getting to the basket. He had a couple really key and ones. He started off the game really taking it to the whole strong. And I like seeing that part of him more than jump shooting Barrett or trying to even create Barrett. Like when he almost just goes straight forward and is like, I'm going to end up shooting this. I'm going to get some contact. I'm going to draw a foul. That's where he's at his best. But like you said with the Jarrett Allen thing where they brought him up in the offensive rebounds and whatever else, that really did get him out of positions. Like there was multiple times where the Cavaliers got burned because, you know, the shot goes up and Jared Allen is 10 feet away from the rim and then Mitchell Robinson who has just been 
Matt, ben, has Mitchell Robinson been the best big man in this series? Because I, I kind of think he's been the best big man in this series, and he's been absolutely tearing it up near the paint. I mean, maybe, but this is where it gets so tricky, especially in a small sample, to try to make sense of an extreme context. And and we really it's your point earlier about comparing the series in Sacramento to the series in New York. Mitchell Robinson and 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 yesterday it was Obi Toppin as well are getting these rebounds because of their teammates and because of the way the Cavs are choosing to defend the, these their teammates in New York and kind of pick their poison based on that. I want you to guess how many offensive rebounds in game four Mitchell Robinson and Obi Toppin had. This is a 2023 playoff game. I want you to guess how many offensive rebounds they had. Now, again, people, I don't believe in stats anymore, so I definitely haven't looked this up. So I'm going to guess like, I'm going to say like like 13. Oh, that is fantastic. They had 12 offensive rebounds between the two of them. Obi Toppin and Mitchell Robinson with 12 offensive rebounds between the two of them. Mitchell Robinson in game three had five offensive rebounds himself. He had seven offensive rebounds in game four, seven of the Knicks, 17 offensive rebounds and just a ton of them were from this action where they're bringing over the big man early and that's to help on the drive and the immediate action and the pick and roll and all that and it's good uh, but I do wonder if they have to mix that up a little bit just because of the the weak side the weak side success that the Knicks have had has been huge eh, Cody either way this is this has been a really fun series I want to get to that in a second because the other guy I want to shout out, uh, Isaiah Hartenstein, uh, defensively, again, like Mitchell Robinson goes to the bench and this guy comes in, meets Okoro's two-handed dunk attempt at the rim, just sends it back. That's not the only time he has a good defensive play. He has a couple others. He has a couple key blocks in that third. And then at one point, he has this help steal against Jarrett Allen. Uh, there was a point where like near the end of the fourth, there were a couple times where he was trying to do the Sabonis thing where he would like go way off Jared Allen and Allen's like, oh, I'm huge. I should like dribble towards the basket and make a hook shot. And he definitely did that a couple times. But I think what's so jarring about this series is going into this. If you were like, one of these teams is going to dominate with their size. Which one is it going to be? I'd be like, oh, the Cavaliers. They're obviously the big, bigger team. But the Knicks have just seemed like the bigger, more bruising team. And it's not even Julius Randle, who, who definitely just didn't have the usage yesterday. Ben, when we're talking about this, what sorts of adjustments do you think the Cavaliers can make to, I guess, take advantage of them actually having the bigger players and keeping their, you know, Mobley and Allen near the basket more. I mean, we're, we're going into game five, so I think you're usually out of adjustments um, in any meaningful way outside of just trying more single big lineups, which goes back to the Kings and the Warriors and Looney. It's, you know, staggering Looney and Draymond Green, which is what Golden State did in the first half. I think I would try that. If I were Cleveland, that we've seen it a little bit. We talked about how it opened up game two for them significantly. I would I would try to get more out of that. I'm glad you called out Hartenstein. He's had incredible minutes off the bench, both offensively and defensively, defensively playing the role required of him. The Knicks are actually plus 15 per 100 in the first four games with him on the court. So they've had a ton of success. But uh, I would I would give single bigs a look at this point more if I were Cleveland and see if we don't give up too much defensively. But again, the problem is it's just hard to it's hard when you don't have depth to fill those spots up with players that actually made the trade off, make the trade off worth it. 
if you take someone like Jared Allen and play him, you know, 18 to 24 minutes instead of 30 to 36 minutes. I forgot my Brunson stat, Cody. My Brunson stat. Um, one of the things we keep track of uh, for our subscribers, time of possession. What is the percentage of time you have the ball when your team is on offense? Jalen Brunson leads all players in the NBA playoffs by a landslide. He is at 46%, almost half the time the Knicks have the ball. Jalen Brunson has it. Uh, that is up 4% from the regular season. And we've talked about how the mega Helio guys, Luka Doncic, Trey Young, they flirt with 50% in their highest load, highest usage seasons. So he's had a lot of ball dominance in this series. For comparison, Trey Young is at 38%. He's second in the playoffs. Wow. That's up one percentage point from the regular season. James Harden, 36%. That's down four percentage points. Um, just as a, another point of comparison, John Morant, 32%. Darren Fox, 32%. Steph Curry, 31%. So it's really interesting to see Brunson have the ball this much. We mentioned some of Sabonis' weaknesses being exposed. I think the Cavs have done a good job of attacking and exposing some of Jalen Brunson's playmaking weaknesses. When they put two bodies on him in the pick and roll, either with a trap or a blitz or a hedge or whatever it is, that second guy comes out. Jalen Brunson's a small guy. So that size affects him. And he can't easily puncture the defense with only three players behind. So he's often, he's struggling, he's turning it over, or he's just making this really basic outlet release valve pass and then the Knicks are attacking there they did a little bit of a better job in game four positioning the spacing so when he made that immediate quick pass the next player could then make a pass to set something up and still attack an opening but that's been really interesting to watch because we said it earlier he, he is by far the weakest of the playmakers among Mitchell and Garland among the sort of all-star guards in this series and it has impacted them at the time, but he's had the ball so much and his isolation scoring dance that he does has been effective enough that I think it's given the Knicks the requisite offensive punch and shot quality in this series. And the Knicks guys like whatever it is, four through 10 are significantly better to me than the Cavs five through 10. And I think that's just been, been the difference as, as you kind of grind down into these games. And this is all happening with Grimes being out and quickly just not really having the best series either. And, I, you know, talking about like that fifth starter, the fifth player for the Cavs, I think the Okoro thing is really a tough push-pull because when he's playing those minutes, I think that Okoro's done a really good job defending Jalen Brunson. Like one-on-one, -on -one, I've been like, okay, this guy's really bringing it. But, of course, on the offensive end, I feel like the Knicks are able to just help off so much more with with Okoro being in the corner. And, you know, I saw them, I saw the Cavs trying to play around with their lack of guys that can space in the corner there were a couple times where like Garland sets a screen for Mitchell he rolls gets the short roll pass and then hits Mobley who like cuts from the corner and gets a layup or a dunk and I'm like oh okay so you can just kind of cut sometimes and, and take advantage of this but that doesn't always work so I I just like you said I don't really know what other what other pitches I think that's a thing people do in sports what other pitches the Cavaliers are able to bring with their their lack of players that can uh that can space you know I'm, I'm feeling not feeling so good about the Cavaliers at this point, Ben. 
Cody, I did the thing where I waited till the end of the show to do the thing we were supposed to start the show with. Uh, I just, I just get, I just get too excited when we start recording. It all just starts pouring out of me. I, I have to have to share this before we leave. The officiating in the playoffs, they have allowed a lot more physicality. I love it. I think it's been great. I think fans actually like not only the intensity, but enjoying defenders getting to slide their feet and work and stay in front of you. And if the offensive player leans in and bumps you a little bit, it's okay. It's not a foul, right? That allows the defenders to basically have a chance to stop you. So for instance, John Morant, he's matched up with Troy Brown. He gets to his left hand, that dominant left hand that he likes, even though he's right-handed, he loves to go left. Um, he's driving into the paint area. He leans into the right against Troy Brown. 90% of the time in the regular season, that's a foul. And then Jaw falls down, flails, shoots it at the basket and gets free throws. In this game, and pretty consistently throughout the playoffs, that is no longer a foul. That's a no call. And you get spectacular plays like Jaw leaning in, bumping Troy, then flailing up the shot. Troy Brown Pogo stick spikes it back in his face. Ball ball swings around, and in that possession, Anthony Davis blocked another shot because Anthony Davis has looked incredible. But the officiating in this postseason, not only do I personally like it, that's just my my preference. Um, you know, everyone's mileage may vary, but your eyes are not deceiving you. It is different. I think it's changed things slightly for certain teams, depending on how you generate your offense, depending on how you generate your free throws or your advantages. And we look at this uh, number of fouls called per two-point attempt, which is an indicator that we've tracked for a long time on this show. I believe I included it in the 30-minute historical video on the evolution of the rules and officiating on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel last summer. And again, this ratio looks at Shooting fouls called to the number of two-point attempts because you're much more likely to have a shooting foul called on a two-point attempt than some three-point jumper. Although, you know, more more landing space fouls and things like that have been called on threes over the last few years. But we're really trying to track, like, how much physicality is allowed, what, what can defenders do when players are attacking the basket. If we look at this ratio, it went way, way up after the bubble, after the shortened season, we had a points of emphasis last year where the game was more physical. It dropped from about 18 down to 16, meaning 16 shooting fouls per every 100 two-point shots. You can think of it as 16% of the two-point attempts had shooting fouls called on them. Started to go up, back up throughout the year last year, back to 18, crossed over 18, in the last month of the season, it went to 19. We talked about this as it was happening, as they were calling more and more fouls. In the playoffs, it was up at 19, one of the highest marks of all time. Actually, the second highest mark of all time. And this season, it kept going. It went to 19, it went to 20. It was at 20 for most of the season. That is the highest of all time, basically. It's the highest on record. In these playoffs, it has gone back to 17 shooting fouls per 100. So we are now back at, if you look at the postseason, 
the 2021 postseason was around 17. The 2018 postseason was around 17. And the last time we were under 16 was the 2016 postseason. So it is a shift that, at least in this statistical signal, is enormous in terms of saying how much contact is being allowed, how much are they actually giving defenders freedom to guard and challenge shots around the basket area. Again, personally, I really enjoy watching that sort of level of, of defensive uh, uh, contesting, um, but it's also just going to affect the overall offensive efficiency as offensive rating is about three points lower than where we were in the regular season. So we still have these great offenses, but you can see how officiating can give the defense just a little bit more of a chance, 10 to 15% drop in the overall number in this case. I was going to reference that that three-point drop because I apologize. I, I might mess up your last name here, but Tom Bassin in on Twitter tweeted about this. He had a nice little graph showing like uh, the drop-off from the regular season to the playoffs since like the, the 2001 series. And on average, he said that there's been about a one and a half point per 100% drop-off, whereas this season, it's about three points per 100 possessions. Now, he tweeted this, I think, at the beginning of yesterday, so it was prior to all four of those games. And obviously, at this point in the playoffs, numbers change really, really quickly, so I'm not sure what that is at this point. Do you think that the officiating is... Uh, is probably the thing that we should point to the most for this uh, statistical change so far? I think it's a huge part of it. Yeah, I, I think it is a huge part of it. Now, to really do it justice, you want to look at the teams that play in the regular season versus the playoffs. Sometimes if you have more offensive teams in the playoffs, then your playoff offensive rating will be higher. If you have more defensive teams, like more of your Cavs situations going on that we talked about, then your defensive rating will be lower. But just in general... I do think um, what we're seeing is because of this uh, officiating change largely. And yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on it, but uh, not totally abnormal to see a three-point drop. But as that tweet covered, as, as you mentioned, it is a little bit larger than average. And I think it's, I think it's because of this shift. I'm trying to look it up right now. I don't know if I can do it quickly enough. Nope, I'm not going to be able to do it quickly. What are you but looking yeah, up? I, what, I, what are we getting to? <laughs> I'm, I was just looking at how much it changed since yesterday morning. I want oh, to see it's, what the it's, it's, it's 113 was. right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. It's 113. It was a little over 116, I think, the final average if you look at the play-by-play data. I, I looked at it okay. this morning. That's so great. I, I, I mean, the Knicks and the Cavs probably account for like all of that. Like if we eliminated them, it would probably be about the same. <laughs> yeah. What did they have, a, a 99-78 game the other day or something? Co- Cody was tweeting about it like it was the, the finale of succession. I mean, he was just – he was like, I can't – he's like, I can't believe it. We didn't get to 80 points. This is one of the great I, moments of my life. I was so confused. You were like, we have one of the great first-round playoff series. And I'm like, yes, we're going to talk about Knicks-Cavs right now. This offensive rating is exactly what we need. All right. Uh, before we get out of here, are there any other series that we should either talk about or continue to not talk about so the fan bases will get extremely mad at us every episode? Um, we, we see you. We see you in the YouTube comments complaining about the fact that we're not talking about your favorite team. It's all a conspiracy. You know, we, the, we, all, we, all, have, we all are out to get your favorite team. That's why. Listen, the, the fact... The fact that I wasn't able to take an ISO 
after game two of the Bucks, I mean that's exact that's the reason they lost game three, is because I didn't get my isolation. The fact, Ben, the fact that the Bucks, like I said earlier in the episode, broke the first half scoring in a single half in franchise history, Ben Ben, Pat Riley was in attendance that game. He wasn't even the best Pat in the building at that point. And you know, you we're, already, we're you already see used that line. Yeah, uh, not on that. this podcast. Not on yeah. this podcast. Yeah, last episode you used that line. No, I didn't. I didn't say it on this podcast. Well, then you've been saying it to me so much. You've been texting it to me like the putty pillow sheets. It's creeping in to my brain. Um, we'll let we'll let the users you know, you adjudicate. Silence me. I'm being silenced. I'm being silenced, and so I have my perfect pun, and I am going to use it and use it as what I'm doing. Giannis comes back tonight. They will have their vengeance. Unless unless Jimmy Butler continues to be like the most enigmatic uh, offensive or any kind of playoff player in NBA history, because that's that's always a possibility too. This is a good bit. This is a good bit because I have to confess to the people, I did give Cody a gag order. I said he was not allowed to talk about the Bucks. He he said he said give me the ball and get out of the way. And I instructed all the members of the team to to freeze him out. It was Isaiah and Michael Jordan in the uh, in the All Star game in 1985, whatever that was. Um, all right. If you want to support this show, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We will have our playoff stats. Some of the things we have referenced, we will have that up and live this week for all the playoff games and series and players that we've discussed. Patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We also have our live monthly Q&A in our Discord for our deluxe members. That's a lot of fun. You come in, you ask me questions about anything I stammer and stumble through them because usually it's like I'm scouting the playoffs and they ask me about 1975 Bob Lanier. Have you noticed that, Cody? Yeah, it's usually a question that's like, if we replace both your legs with pogo sticks, would you be able to be a functional NBA player? <laughs> there was there was one where they, well, how big was my vertical leap? They, I think they gave me a 20-foot vertical leap and wondered if I could play in the NBA. Yeah. That was the ultimate shot at my T-Rex arms. Um, thank, thanks, as always, for listening all the way through. And, of course, wherever you are, I do hope you're having a great day.